Welcome to the Dental Code Advisor Podcast, hosted by Practice Boosters coding experts, Dr. Charles Blair and Dr. Greg Grobmeyer. Interpretations of the CDT codes represent the opinions of our experts. For the latest CDT codes and official interpretations, contact the American Dental Association or visit ADA.org. You are responsible for your own use of the CDT codes. Tune in now for timely information regarding dental coding. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Dental Code Advisor podcast. I'm Dr. Greg Grobmeyer. The last episode, we continued our discussion with Dr. Charles Blair, the preferred provider organizations, and looked at the documents that define the relationship between the dentist and the PPOs. We looked at handcuffs commonly found with participation, and we briefly discussed how to leverage optional services and alternate benefits and things like that. So if you haven't gotten a chance to go back and listen to episode three, please do so. But today we're moving on. I've got another guest. We're going to be discussing the coordination of benefits. Now, I'll bet if you've been involved in filing insurance for any length of time, do you feel like coordination of benefits is something that you've got down and probably understand pretty well? But I will guarantee you that there are so many moving pieces in properly filing claims that involve multiple payers. It is highly likely that you're doing something that you can improve on. You're probably doing something incorrectly, and I guarantee you're going to learn something new on this podcast today. I've got the fabulous Miss Tiffany Wesley, who I've had the privilege of working with over the last six months or so. Tiffany wears a whole lot of hats. Over about a decade, she's worked in dental practice management. She's worked in leadership coaching and consulting. She's been a success consultant and launch specialist at eAssist Dental Solutions. She now serves as an administration advisor at Practice Booster. So she works along with me. She works as a project manager, editor, and contributor at eAssist Publishing. She helps on our coding books. She helps on our newsletter, and she helps on so many things. It's been a pleasure to work with Tiffany. We've got her here today to talk a little bit more in depth. I kind of focus in on coding aspects of things. Tiffany is our resident expert on insurance administration. And Tiffany, how are you today? Hey, Greg. Thank you so much. I'm doing well. I'm doing great. Excited what? to be here. Well, I just want to kind of start off. I know this is kind of basic, but for those who are at the basic level, just what is coordination of benefits? Where did it come from? What does it mean? So coordination of benefits really was designed so that claims aren't going to be overpaid when a patient has more than one insurance. The primary purpose being to really establish the order for you to submit claims in that payers reimburse those claims. Unfortunately, uh, many plans don't actually have written contract language for coordination of benefits. So to kind of help clear up that confusion, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, or the NAIC, created a coordination of benefits model for different insurance laws and regulations. And then they review those periodically in order to identify gaps and then fit them in a way that maybe the current model doesn't address. It's really kind of a complex situation because not all these models that they create are adapted by everybody. Is that correct? Right. In fact, states actually get to decide whether or not they want to adopt 
the NAIC COB model. Most states have adopted at least one version of the regulation model, but not all of them are actually using the most recent model, which was created in 2013. So state to state, this thing is varying and the laws aren't always the same for all the players involved. And on top of that, we've got the difference between self-funded plans and state-managed plans. Yeah, exactly. So the NAIC was really trying to help, right, to clear up all that confusion, but to make things even more complicated, (laughs) only about half of the dental plans that are actually offered right now are actually regulated by state insurance laws. So then the rest of them are federally regulated through ERISA or the Employment, Retirement and Income Security Act of 1974. So we talked a little bit about that difference between self-funded and state regulated plans in episode two of our podcast. Talked to Dr. Blair about that. And so if you go back and listen a little bit more of an explanation, you can go there. But we want to talk to you a little bit about actually working with coordination of benefits when you're filing a claim. And the first step of this is just figuring out who is primary and who is secondary. And it's not always just a clear cut, obvious thing. Right. So there are basically five questions that you can ask yourself to kind of help you figure it out as you go along. The first one being, is the patient the policyholder or are they a dependent? So typically a plan that covers a patient as an employee or a subscriber is going to be primary over a plan that covers a patient as a dependent. The only exception to this would be if the patient's a Medicare beneficiary, and then the order of that is going to be reversed. Wait, now say that one more time. If the patient is an employee, that's their primary plan. If they're a dependent, if they've got mom and dad's insurance, then their insurance is going to supersede their parents' insurance, correct? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Unless the patient is Medicare. Right. Then Medicare would be primary. Medicare becomes primary in that situation. Right. So typically, patients who have Medicare are over the age of 65. You can have Medicare for other reasons, but when a patient turns 65, Medicare becomes primary to any plan that lists the patient as the policyholder. What other questions? You said that there were multiple questions to ask here. What else? Yeah. So then you also want to find out and ask yourself, is this plan medical or is it dental? So the Affordable Care Act actually kind of threw everybody for a loop by allowing medical plans to cover certain types of procedures for dependents up to the age of 26. As a general rule of thumb, medical plans, even those with those embedded dental benefits, will be primary to any type of a standalone dental plan, like a Delta Dental or or something like that. And that's where knowledge of ICD-10 codes come in, filing with medical insurance. That's a topic that we'll be getting into on a different podcast. I'm not going to touch on that today. That's a pretty complex uh, (laughs) uh, topic to cover. So what is another question that you should be asking? So next we want to know, is the patient actively employed? A plan that covers a patient as an active employee or as the dependent of an active employee is always going to be primary over a plan that covers the patient as a laid off employee or as a retiree. So Let's say that a patient is a dependent on an active employee plan, but also has a a COBRA plan because they were laid off from work. 
In this case, even though they're a dependent on the active employee plan, that plan is going to be primary and then the COBRA plan would be secondary. Then we've got Medicare and that kind of changes some things up too. What's the changes with Medicare? As I mentioned before, when a patient turns 65, Medicare then becomes primary, right? To all the plans that are listing them as a policyholder. With that being said, the same rule applies when we're talking about active employment. So let's say we have a 65-year-old patient who has a retiree plan. They also have Medicare and they have an active employee plan through their spouse. So in this case, the active employee plan would be primary and then Medicare would be secondary, right? Because the patient's 65 and Mm -hmm. then our tertiary or third in line plan that we would be sending claims to would be that retiree plan. So we're not talking about just primary, secondary, we're talking about tertiary. You can have many, many insurances and there's a specific order in which you have to understand that these are going to be filed. Yeah, exactly. Not so many claims in the right order is really going to make things complicated. (laughs) You're going to have a lot of headaches on the back end just trying to figure out what's going on. It's going to postpone payment. It's going to make it where all the uh, insurers are confused and asking for the other insurers information and really complicates. Yeah, absolutely. Especially as a business owner, when you're thinking about the business team that you have handling all of these different claims and whatnot, you're not just delaying payment or receiving those. You're paying your business team their hourly salary or whatever, just to try to clean things up and get them fixed. Well, moving on, we've got questions about the parent-child relationship. Yeah. So this is something that actually comes up a lot, right? We're in a culture of blended families. It's always hard to to figure out like, who do I send a claim to? So if you have a patient who's a dependent child and their parents are married, in this case, the birthday rule is going to apply. And that essentially says that whichever parent birthday occurs first in a calendar year, that plan is going to be primary. And that is taking into account the month and the day only. So if mom has a plan and her date of birth is January 1st of 1985, and then you've got dad who has a plan and his date of birth is December 31st of 1980, mom's plan is still going to be primary because it occurs first in the calendar year and that year of birth doesn't matter. And this is in a situation where it's a married couple who are the biological parents of the child. Correct. Now, let's say, for example, you've got uh, parents who are separated or if they're divorced. If there is a custody agreement in place, then the parent who has custody, their plan is going to be primary. If their spouse covers the dependent child on a plan, their plan's actually going to be secondary tertiary or third in line is going to be that non-custodial parent. And then fourth in line or quaternary would be their spouse. So custodial parent, that parent's spouse, non-custodial parent, and then the non-custodial parent's spouse. Okay. So those with custody, it is the biological parents first and then their spouse. And then it is the non-custodial couple who's tertiary and quaternary. Right. Exactly. Now, the only exception to this really would be if for some reason there's a court order in place that outlines or specifies the way that claims should be submitted or paid, any court order will always supersede the general rules of thumb that we're kind of talking about today. Okay. Now, what about 
plans where the child is married. Right. So this actually comes up quite a bit. Um, You've got a child who is under the age of 26. They're still considered a dependent on the parent's plan, but they're also married and maybe they're covered as a dependent on their spouse's plan. So in this case, whichever plan has covered the patient the longest, that plan is going to be primary. It's really complex, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. That's why we have lovely flow charts and references and things to look at. I love Uh, flow charts. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Really straightens things out sometimes. Just to throw things for a loop, you've got a supplemental plan, like an Aflac plan. I like to call it the thing about Aflac. So (laughs) (laughs) Aflac supplemental plans do not actually coordinate benefits. They pay a flat fee for certain cover services. One thing I want to make sure to mention is I don't want listeners to be confused between an Aflac supplemental plan and an Aflac PPO plan because they offer those now. So that's that's new. That's new as of this year. The PPO plans are just coming out. So yeah, you can't just say Aflac anymore. You have to specify. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people just aren't even aware that Affleck has those PPO plans yet. And then they just assume that it's a supplemental plan. That's why, you know, things like insurance verification are always important. Mm -hmm. So these supplemental plans pay a flat fee for their covered services. However, (laughs) one thing to note, especially during that insurance verification process, right, is to ask how plans coordinate. So there are some payers like Medicaid, for example, that actually consider this supplemental plan to be primary. Mm -hmm. And they're going to deduct whatever AFLAC is paid from the amount that they would have paid had they been primary. Medicaid is kind of unique in that. That's not something you're going to see with other plans, but uh, Medicaid, certainly that's a question you need to ask. So what is the number one missed billing step that a lot of people forget and it puts everything behind? I know. I feel like I just gave this away. (laughs) Um, It's insurance verification. People skip this step all the time. It's crazy. It's dumbfounding that people skip this step. But, you know, it makes sense. It can be very time consuming, especially if you're a smaller practice and you don't have a dedicated insurance verification guru, you know, it takes up a lot of time. If you've got one person running your front office, they're checking patients in, they're checking patients out. They're probably working up treatment plan estimates. They're answering the phone. They don't always have the time to sit there on hold with an insurance company trying to verify benefits. And then the worst part is when you're sitting on hold for 30 minutes. And as soon as it hits 30 minutes, it like automatically hangs up on you. (laughs) And then you have to call back and do it all over again. So, you know, if you don't have the right team in place or enough team members, I guess I should say in place to really handle insurance verification, then I can understand why it would be missed. In which cases I always highly, highly, highly recommend that people really research their options for outsourcing, this will change your life, completing insurance verification. Its value is oftentimes very underestimated. You can get so much information that really helps in submitting clean, accurate claims to insurance and really kind of avoiding those denials and rejections. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is amazingly important in understanding the individual plans because everybody's just different. You can't assume even from husband to wife that things are going to be the same. Right. Exactly. So it's an essential part of the entire process. 
we're getting a little tight on time. I did want to kind of talk about some myths with coordination of benefits. We're going to end up doing a part two of this. We've barely broken the surface on this topic, but a couple of myths. You hear a lot that if a patient has more than one insurance, then they just automatically don't have to pay a copay. Right. And that's wrong. <laughs> wrong. I feel like I need a buzzer. Mm-hmm. Unless for some right, unless for some reason one of the plans is Medicaid, in which case you would not worry about collecting that copay. But each plan requires a patient to participate in the cost of care. We could get into copay forgiveness and the ins and outs with that. And I'm not going to go down that path. That's like a whole nother podcast episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. So just know the takeaway is if a patient has more than one insurance, they still have to pay their copay unless it's Medicaid. Okay. If a patient has more than one insurance, does that mean they automatically have more coverage? And obviously they'll be paying less out of pocket. No, (laughs) not always. It could be, or it could not. So we've got different ways that plans actually coordinate benefits. You've got your standard or uh, traditional type of coordination of benefits, which essentially says that the patient can receive up to 100% coverage from a combination of both insurances. So let's say, uh, for example, that both plans pay 80% for a $200 filling, which would be $160. Primary pays the $160, and then secondary is going to pay that remaining $400 to get you up to that $200. And the office can keep up to their submitted fee, which is yet another reason why to always submit your full practice fee or discounted fee if you gave a discount and not the PPO fee. Yes. You want to absolutely make sure that you're getting every dollar that you're owed. Exactly. 100%. So outside of traditional standard, normal coordination of benefits, there are some other ways that certain insurances approach this. Some plans say they're not going to coordinate benefits at all. Uh, We call this non-duplication of benefits. So in this case, if primary pays the same or more than secondary would have paid had it been primary, then secondary isn't going to be responsible for any kind of a payment. So the reimbursement is actually limited to the greater amount allowed by both plans. Having that secondary insurance in this particular case for that particular procedure really had no benefit at all. Again, that goes back to the point, just having two insurances doesn't mean that you're getting more benefits. Right. Say we were looking at that same example, right? And primary pays 50% for $200 filling and then secondary pays 80%. Primary pays that $100 and then secondary is actually going to pay the $60 to make up that difference and bring you up to the $160 had secondary been primary. Gotcha. Uh, It's incredibly complex. And that's not the only ways that insurance plans coordinate. There's also maintenance of benefits. Right. This can be a little tricky for some people to wrap their minds around. So we'll break it down just a little bit. In this case, the secondary plan is going to reduce the charges by the amount already paid by primary. And then it's going to calculate their payment based on what's left. So let's go back to that example of the uh, both plans paying 80%. Primary, in this case, is going to pay that $160. Second, Which is 80% of the $200 filling. Yeah, exactly. And then secondary, instead of paying that $40 difference, like they would have had it been like a traditional coordination of benefits, 
they're going to pay 80% of the $40 that's remaining or $32. So they are maintaining that percentage on over into their part. And so, and that's where the term comes from. Well, I want us to kind of wrap things up for today. So we're absolutely doing a part two to this on coordination of benefits. There's a lot of other things to talk about. Plan types, we're going to talk about some general rules of thumb for calculating patient responsibility and write-offs, how to do it, non-covered services, and how to know if you have a true overpayment and have to actually send money, refund money back to the plan. Those are all things that we're going to touch on next time around. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been very enlightening, and I look forward to our next engagement. Oh, thank you so much, Greg. Next time I won't talk so much. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by Practice Booster, an e-assist publishing company. To learn more, visit dentalcodeadvisor.com.